0: Hello and welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talked to Dr. Matthew Tannenbaum, the Associate Medical Officer of Health for Wellington Dufferin Guelph Public Health, who is pinch-hitting for Dr. Nicola Mercer on this quarterly COVID-19 check-in edition of the podcast. The last time that Dr. Mercer was on the show, 14 episodes ago. We were on the downward slide from the high of the second wave. The vaccine rollout was moving slowly, but there was also a vague hopefulness for a brighter spring. Now it's almost summer. The third wave is still going strong, but progress is being made to get more people shots. But even that move has had some very public hiccups that are crying out for an in-depth discussion. It's time for another edition of Still COVID on this week's episode of the Guelph Politicast. Now, when we did the last edition of Still COVID, we were getting excited because the region's seven-day moving rate of confirmed cases was hovering around 40 per 100,000, and the test positivity was around 3.6%. This was not the greatest news, but it did put the region in the starting position to come out of lockdown. Of course, Wellington, Dufferin, Guelph, did reopen a few weeks later, and we made it all the way back to orange level, but by April, the whole province was in lockdown again, and last weekend, the seven-day moving rate in the region was over 80 per 100,000, and the test positivity was 7.4%. If it felt like we took one step forward and five steps back, we basically did, and that ended up putting more pressure on public health to get us all vaccinated. On that front, Wellington Dufferin Guelph has actually done very well. As of this week, more than half of the region has received at least one dose of the three distributed vaccines, which, depending on the days, is either keeping pace with the provincial and national vaccine rollout or exceeding it. But even when things are running smoothly with the vaccines, there are problems, and last week there was a big one, when Ontario decided to discontinue the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine as a first dose. This was done out of an abundance of precaution due to, and I hope I get this right, vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia, or VITT for those of us who are not doctors. But the price of caution was concern. Concern about the efficacy of the vaccines and concern about the advice of public health professionals. We need to talk to a doctor. And this week on the podcast, we've got a doctor. So this week on the Guelph Politicast, we talked to Dr. Tannenbaum about the issues around AstraZeneca's vaccine, how you know that you're having a normal reaction to it, and how long you have to be concerned about getting blood clots or other adverse effects. We also debunked some of the talking points from the vaccine hesitancy file, including the difference between emergency and permanent authorization, the possibility of needing COVID vaccine boosters, and how best to read open source data collected about adverse vaccine events. And finally, Dr. Tannenbaum will talk about what the COVID case numbers tell us, his level of assurance that we will have a semi-normal fall this year, and what he will one day tell his newborn daughter about what it was like to live through the pandemic. So I caught up with Dr. Matthew Tannenbaum late last week via Zoom. So Dr. Matthew Tannenbaum, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, I had a pleasure to be here. I thought I would begin by asking you to audit my vaccine experience. I, I got the AstraZeneca shot almost two weeks ago from when we're recording. Um, so I got the shot around 10 in the morning uh, for 12 solid hours. I was good. And then I started getting the chills, and I had the chills for about three, four hours. And I, I was able to time it because I could not get to sleep that night. So I had a, a, a very <laughs> restless night. Um, but by the next morning, I was starting to feel better. I had like, my appetite wasn't there. I wasn't feeling hungry. I wasn't like I was queasy or anything, but I just I wasn't feeling hungry. And then that went away about like the next day. So it was about 48 hours of discomfort uh, before I was getting back to normal. Uh, how normal is that experience? So I
1: want to reassure you first off the bat that that kind of thing is totally normal. Uh, We know that not everyone has this, but some people definitely have some side effects after getting a vaccine like that. You know, they get soreness at the arm, they'll get a little bit of chills, maybe a fever, they feel tired, run down, have muscle aches. Those can last a couple of days. And those are kind of things we know from the clinical trials. And they're really a reflection of the fact that the vaccine's working. It means it's activating your immune response. And that's what you're feeling, is the immune response inside your body that's doing its thing. Um, That's the kind of thing we, We mentioned we don't worry about it a whole lot because it is so mild. Mm. And I know that there's been a lot of information out there about AstraZeneca recently. And I want to reassure you that what you experience is common to all the vaccines. And there's not a reason to be concerned.
0: Mm -hmm. Because I think the focus has been on AstraZeneca because there's been the the ever-changing conditions, shall we say, of the rollout, which is something we've not seen with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines as much. Um, So people have it in their head, this idea that the AstraZeneca vaccine is a lesser vaccine, which is not something, I mean, that's obviously not the way you or other health professionals would would want to phrase that.
1: Yeah. And I'm just going to recognize there has been a lot of messaging out there coming out fast and furious, especially as we've been learning more about AstraZeneca and kind of how it fits into our overall vaccine plan and what options we have available. Uh, you know, we are at a point where we're a little over a year into the pandemic. Mm. Uh, you know, it was, I guess, probably around March last year that the uh, vaccine manufacturers began recruiting for their clinical trials. And who would have thought that at this point, you know, a little more than a year out, we would have uh, four approved vaccines, three available vaccines, and that we would even have the ability to choose. In some ways, that's miraculous. and It's a reflection of uh, that part of the pandemic going better than we thought it was going to go. hmm when it comes to AstraZeneca, um, it's a really unfortunate situation in my mind because it's a vaccine that is actually, in many ways, a great vaccine, and it's gotten a really bad rap for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, it's it came out uh, the way some of the study results for it were communicated were not great. Some of the data wasn't exactly uh, you know uh, uh, commu- uh, communicated completely. Right. There are questions raised about the data. You know. The, That effort actually is good. It is a good vaccine. It was uh, trialed in different parts of the world, which were different than the places where uh, Pfizer and Moderna were trialed, and therefore the numbers that the actual trials produced were different, but it is a very good and effective vaccine. And then, of course, you began learning about this this, uh, blood clot condition. We call it FIT.
0: Mm -hmm. and
1: that's something we've been learning a lot about over recent weeks and you know I've spoken with hematologists and heard about the way this can look and we've been giving our local docs information about what this complication is because oftentimes they're the ones giving the vaccines. Essentially in a very rare circumstances people who've gotten the vaccine they can develop blood clots and they typically come on between four days and four weeks after they got the vaccine. It's essentially like an immune response in the body Uh, We think that there are antibodies people have that react to the vaccine and that causes platelets in their blood to group together, causing blood clots. Mm
0: -hmm. Not
1: all blood clots are terrible, but it can result in some pretty bad ones, which is why we talk about it so much. And as we learn about it, we're all obviously looking at how significant it is and also how common it is. We have a really uh, good surveillance system in place so that when vaccine problems occur, you know, complications, side effects get reported to us we assess them ourselves locally, and we also report them up to the province, into the country, and internationally. And then they look for patterns and look for things to be examined more closely. Uh, and then that the pause this week was really about understanding the frequency of those uh, complications.
0: You know, you kind of make it sound, it's a bit like, um when people reject like uh, a transplanted organ, it's kind of like, it sounds, I'm not a doctor, so don't tell me if I'm way off base, but it kind of sounds like that's kind of the, the heart of the reaction is that your body is rejecting something in the vaccine. And correct me if I'm wrong too, but I mean, wouldn't that, if you're rejecting, or if you're having a strong reaction to the vaccine, if you got COVID, would, would that be an indicator you would have a strong reaction to COVID too?
1: So we think this operates on kind of its own plane, its own mechanism. It's not like other blood clots. It's not like the kind of blood clots you get from birth control pill, for example.
0: Mm.
1: And it's probably different from how things work in COVID itself. Mm. Uh, We do know that if you get COVID, you have a really high risk getting blood blood clots as part of that. That is a high risk condition. And that's part of the sort of risk benefit uh, assessment that we do when we think about the vaccine and what it prevents and what could cause. Uh, So it, it is its own thing. We have some experience in medicine with uh, some people who've had bad reactions to a blood thinner called heparin, and they can mm-hmm. have a condition called heparin-induced uh, immune thrombocytopenia. And essentially, it's the same basic idea where it's the immune system, for some reason, doesn't like that drug. And even though that drug is a blood thinner, it causes blood clots, which does the opposite of what it should do. Right. We think it could be uh, the same kind of thing, but it seems as far as who gets it, it's, it's, you know, we're still investigating it, but it's partly uh, some bad luck involved
0: bad luck. And that's that's not the kind of science you as a doctor like to deal with. You don't like to break things down to, to luck. It's, it's, it's still a learning process.
1: Yeah. I mean, we're, it's fortunately been something that's rare enough globally that we haven't had enough experience to fully understand it. But there are a lot of smart hematologists and other uh, physicians and scientists out there who are learning a lot more about it, including not just how frequent it is, but how to manage it well.
0: And just to clarify too, um, getting a blood clot, whether it is via a vaccine or, or any number of ways one can get a blood clot. Blood clot does not equal fatality, right? So you, you can get a Correct. blood clot and be treated.
1: Yeah, and a big piece of it is where is a blood clot, how bad is a blood clot, and also how soon do you get care? We know the kinds of things that people who get this kind of blood clot should get. You know, they can get immune globulin, they can get a blood thinner of a certain uh, category. And the key thing is for people who have those blood clots to seek care as soon as they can. So we talk a lot about people who getting the who get the vaccine. They need to be informed about you know, having a really bad headache, having swelling in a leg or an arm, having new and bizarre chest pain, abdominal pain, difficulty breathing. Things like that are the signs to look out for. Now, I also know saying that that when I say that, people who are hearing that are gonna say, well, suddenly I have this. And they worry <laughs> a lot about it, right? Because it's it's right. a large list of symptoms. It's gonna it be vague and it can be a frightening thing. And We know that uh, part of the way we communicate about this vaccine uh, can cause quite a bit of anxiety. And uh, it is unfortunate uh, given that, you know, this vaccine does offer good protection and people who got the vaccine have absolutely done the right thing. But there's been so much information coming out fast and furious as we learn. And the way it's been communicated has been so public that uh, people are just making sense of that information and they're thinking about what it means for them.
0: You kind of touched on something that I was wondering about two which is maybe not hypochondria but i mean sort of this like psychosomatic thing where you 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 hear about the symptoms people have when they get a vaccine and you you get the vaccine yourself and you're starting to think to yourself am i getting this like <laughs> am i suffering some sort of side effect uh, i guess where, where how how does how does one proctor oneself when you get the vaccine to make sure that you are understanding what the difference is between a legitimate system that something's wrong and um, something that might be in your head, if you get where I'm coming from.
1: Yeah, and that can be a a tough thing to parse out in a way that, like, it's tough to give an answer to you (laughs) that applies to everyone listening to your podcast because everyone's gonna have their own experience. I guess people need to be as honest with themselves as they can be and think about, you know, if I'm feeling this, what am I feeling? How common is it for me to feel this way if I'm feeling anxious? Am I feeling anxious? Uh, kind of doing a bit of an assessment of how plausible it is. Of course, if you're unsure, then it's good to give your family doc or whoever gives you your primary care a call or to visit them. And, you know, if there's any concern, they can do a blood test, basically a blood blood count. Because people who have this, not only do they have the blood clot, but they have low platelets in their blood. And that's got to do with how the mechanism of this works. And they can test for that and then get you the follow-up care that you need. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's tough to give an answer because, you know, one person's good headache, another person's bad headache, but people typically have a good sense about what's unusual for them. And these are typically things that come up that are unusual for them. Getting a really bad headache, people who don't get bad headaches, for
0: example. And I think you touched on this when we were talking a couple of minutes ago, but between four days and four weeks is kind of the horizon. If you get to the end of four weeks, then you have processed the the vaccine shot well and are uh, you 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 are reaping the benefits and the uh, the liabilities of sort of past. That's kind of the time horizon.
1: Yeah, we generally say that if you're more than four weeks out, you can kind of breathe a sigh of relief. And to be clear, that the vast majority of people who are less than four weeks out are still going to be totally fine. Mm-hmm. I, I, people, I hope, aren't thinking about this as like a ticking time bomb inside of them because <laughs> people are going to be fine by and large. This is incredibly rare. We've had, uh, I think, Public Health Ontario mentioned eight cases that were confirmed when they did the announcement with the province on Tuesday, and this is among hundreds of thousands of doses. So it's something that is quite rare, Um, and people, as I understand it, uh, we look for them within four weeks, but most cases typically have them towards the first half of that four weeks. Mm -hmm. I think it's just a window that's been designed out of an abundance of caution to capture events that might be a little later than usual.
0: Mm -hmm. And for people- We're still learning about it, too. Right. And for people who are sort of looking at these things, because I've admittedly, I've been to, uh, shall we say, skeptical events with uh, skeptical people about the the vaccine. And they point to these numbers that like the CDC and I know the EU also has its its own data agency where it says like, you know, however many thousand events connected to the vaccine. Um, That's not like, strictly speaking, like. Because these systems, anyone can report data to, correct? That it, and it's not, to, one should not take that as a sign that there are thousands of people. And when you say like eight events in Ontario, um, that's not you playing down the numbers. That's, that's kind of you playing with hard data as opposed to these reporting systems that people see thousands and perhaps don't understand how doctors like you then reconcile the data.
1: Yeah. So when it comes to things like this, so first off, all these adverse events, they get reported into us. Uh, They might be reported by uh, the immunization clinic or reported by that person's family doctor, reported by an eMERGE or a hospital. Sometimes people will report it themselves and there's actually a form that people can submit uh, to do that. We then investigate those and of course something as serious as a blood clot like this requires more thorough investigation and if we had concern about that in WDG, I would phone up my colleagues at the province and speak with them about, is this, you know, this complication? Um, What else do we need to gather information wise? How do we make sure we have a complete picture of this? And then, you know, we would be pretty confident that's what we're dealing with before it gets officially classified as this. Right. Um, So these, these systems are meant to be very inclusive, uh, but things like that do get further assessed.
0: Right. It's uh, not, not to dumb it down completely, but it's, it's the equivalent of someone you know, calling the police and saying, you know, my bike was stolen. And perhaps you go and find out that that person's bike was stolen. Or perhaps you find out that they left it on the other side of the house where they didn't check. And it's, there's an investigative step, right, is what I'm getting at.
1: <laughs> Lots of investigative steps. We get a lot of these reports given how many vaccines we're giving in our community. And uh, there's definitely investigation going on.
0: In, in keeping with sort of like trying to dispel misinformation, another thing I hear a lot is about, you um, these vaccines have not been approved by health Canada. And in fact, you know, in that they've not been given like the full total permanent approval, they've gotten emergency approval um, er- Ergo, in the mind of some of these vaccine hesitant people. Um, they are not, you know, they don't have the full, you know, gold steel stamp of approval from health Canada. Uh, can you talk a bit about the, that distinction between the emergency approval and the, the full permanent approval?
1: Absolutely. So essentially, you know, we're in a pandemic, we know that people are getting sick, people are dying, and they have been for the past year. And vaccines are really our our major ticket out of the pandemic in the long term. And Health Canada has known that from early on, so they want to make sure they were able to expedite the review process as the manufacturers and producers were submitting data about their vaccine candidates. Uh, Ordinarily, when Health Canada, you know, in peacetime, so to speak, when Health Canada reviews a new product or a new vaccine, there are a lot of steps, you know, there's a lot of submissions that the manufacturer makes, there's data that gets reviewed, there's back and forth, and those steps typically happen in a certain kind of sequence, and there are waiting periods between as as things are reviewed and as the administrative piece of the process turns its wheels. Mm -hmm. There have been some changes to that process during the pandemic really to enable those key steps to happen on a rapid basis. So things that used to be happening sequentially are now happening concurrently or in parallel. And for example, Health Canada will begin reviewing data even while they're still waiting on other data. They're not waiting for the full package to begin their work because no one has the time, no one can afford to wait. And so they are able to do the key steps that allow them to be sure a vaccine is safe and effective and do it in less time and offer that approval um, on a shorter basis so that vaccines can begin getting into arms. You know, the the fact that they are offering emergency use authorizations is a reflection of the modifications of the process, the fact that it is not their typical process, but there has been no change that impedes their ability to assess the effectiveness or the safety of these vaccines. They still look for the same kinds of things and they wanna make sure that it's meeting the same standard as it would if it were peacetime.
0: Is there another instance where there has been like an emergency authorization for, I mean, obviously not on the scale of this, where we are vaccinating a whole country and indeed a whole planet, but I mean, have there been past circumstances where there have been an emergency use authorization like this, just to quickly address a situation, whatever it is?
1: You know, I'm sure there have been, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but I'm sure that there have been. And, you know, part of it is Health Canada is doing an assessment of how timely is our process, how quickly do we need something out the door, and doing so in a way that does not compromise the safety or efficacy assessments that they do.
0: Mm -hmm. I guess what I'm trying to get at is that this process didn't just like, somebody just didn't pull it out of a hat one day, that this has been something that has been baked into the way Health Canada does things. What if we need something in an emergency
1: Yeah, I'm sure that I I don't have insight personally, but I'm sure that they have thought about in in an emergency circumstance, how would we shift gears to make sure we're responsive to that emergency.
0: And I I wanted to just get your comment on this too. One of the reasons, I mean, as sloppy as it's kind of been at times, one of the reasons there has been this changing approach to new information is because Health Canada is so on top of things and watching every development closely. It's not because they're, you know, they, they took their foot off the pedal and, you know, they've been, th- there have been reporting mechanisms and studies and they've, they've been keeping an eye on things as it's been going along.
1: Yeah, they have been. I know that Health Canada has been observing. NACI, which is the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, they've been looking at things. The various provincial territorial governments and their ministries of health have been watching things quite closely. All the parties are kind of keeping an eye on the latest data to make the best decisions. Mm -hmm. When it comes to, you know, some of the information coming out about things like this, this blood clot uh, adverse event, that really is something that we're noticing because of the way we monitor for safety. Mm. You know, when manufacturers submit their data from their clinical trials to Health Canada, that's based upon trials of like tens of thousands of participants. And they look for not just the effectiveness, but the safety. And we know that there are a lot of really important things that will be caught because you're enrolling tens of thousands of people. But if you have things that are one in a million, one in a hundred thousand, you may not cash them in a clinical trial just because the odds aren't such that they'll come up often enough. So knowing that, even even before COVID, we've always had a process where after a new vaccine is available, we have this uh, reporting mechanism, this surveillance system where adverse events are identified, they're reported to public health, we aggregate them and analyze them. And that allows us to find these really rare events because patterns emerge. And that's what essentially happened with is we saw a pattern of people who had the vaccine, who got these bad blood clots, and then they also had these low platelets in their blood. And that allows some further investigation to find something new that we didn't know about before.
0: Right, right, right. And and clinical trials are never like that big. So if you're talking about like adverse effects in like the one in one one in hundreds of thousands or one in millions, like the the clinical vaccines are never that big anyway. So it it isn't until a drug really goes out on the market that you start to find the the little the little problems, I guess. Not that anyone's life isn't a little problem, but you know, uh, the, it you know you're never having a vaccine clinical trial with millions of participants is what I'm getting at.
1: Yeah, and that's true not just of vaccines; it's true of a lot of different medications and therapeutic yeah. products. The reason that we're so diligent and thorough with vaccines, though, is that we know that people have a really low tolerance for side effects, really low tolerance for risk, because we're giving it to healthy people. And
0: The There's other one thing, thing,
1: if if you're sick and you're getting a medication that's going to make you right. better, because if you don't get it, you're sick. This is going to
0: get healthy. Right. Uh, the other thing I just wanted to address quickly is, I mean, this is still kind of long off because we're, I think in in our region, we're at 44, 45 percent people with one dose. But people are starting to talk about, you know, will we need a booster? You know, what does is this going to be a seasonal thing? Um, I know that there are some people who are using that as a way to sort of undermine the efficacy of vaccines. But I mean, this would not be Such an unusual thing. I mean, because we've already seen that the the virus mutate inside, you know, the past 15 months, it's already mutated several different times. So this would not be unprecedented that we would need a booster to fight off a, a very virulent disease and that that's that spreads like COVID.
1: Yeah, I would say it, w- it would not be surprising to me if we end up needing boosters down the road. You know, flu is a good example of a virus that we encounter every year, but it changes enough that you need a new booster to get some robust immunity. Uh, the tricky thing with COVID is it's, a, it's a, a virus that's only existed for, you know, the past year and a half or less, as far as we know. So people have only had the vaccine for a, a year and some of the earliest trial participants. And so we don't know enough about how long it lasts and we're gonna learn a lot more about uh, the, the need for boosters down the road.
0: Mm-hmm. The
1: value of boosters would be um, helping to take people who have waning immunity and getting it back up again, but also there might be an opportunity for uh, the vaccine products to include, you know, uh, better protection against new variants if new variants emerge, because there's the ability for them to alter the kind of uh, components that are in the vaccine to protect against the new kinds of viruses that are emerging if there's a need.
0: And it may not be a matter of because, I mean, this is, a, again, a huge logistical thing, vac- vaccinating a planet. Um, but that is owing to the fact that nobody has immunity to COVID. Um, it may be a thing where, again, the flu shot, not everybody gets the flu shot. But if enough people have the flu shot, as we saw this year, you kind of make it make the flu less virulent. It, it You know, so, well, um, in the, I guess what I'm trying to get at is in the future, it may not be like a global vaccination effort. It may be more targeted, too, just to prevent that community spread.
1: Mm-hmm. And I guess we'll look at down the road, we're talking years down the road, what the best program looks like. Mm. Like, for example, in Ontario, when it comes to flu, you know, we have a, a universal flu program. People can get the flu across all different ages. Uh, some parts of the country have more targeted programs targeting those who are at high risk, people who are older, have medical conditions, et cetera. And there's different ways of rolling it out, depending on what your goal is and which approach offers the best protection and, and is most effective in the population sense.
0: Right. Since somebody asked this specific question on my social media feed, I thought I would put it to you. Um, if you are s- someone who perhaps works at an essential job out of town and you get vaccinated at your travel, let's say Brampton, um, those numbers are reflected in the WDG numbers. So that... I guess, I guess, I think what this person was specifically assured about was that we know everyone who gets vaccinated and that plays, you know, so no matter where you live or where you work or where you get vaccinated, that information is logged and categorized appropriately.
1: Yes. So across all of Ontario, there's a common uh, data system we use. It's called COVAX. And no matter where you get your vaccine, your data is entered there into the same system. And that includes information about where you live. When we pull data for our dashboard, for example, we look at it on the level of who lives in WDG and what are our you know, percent completion rates for different age groups, for example, among people who live there. We also track separately um, our, our progress based upon doses delivered in WDG. Mm-hmm. but That is its own metric and we focus more on among people who live in WDG, what's our progress.
0: Right. I want to look, just talk generally about sort of where we are in the pandemic right now. I have noticed that there have been, you know, three or four new fatalities from the virus in the region in the last week or so. Uh, I know that for the much of the first three waves, the, the people who have passed away were over 65. Um, has that changed at all? I mean, have the, people who've died of the virus now, um, are, are they in some, those younger cohorts that are sort of feeling the effects of the virus now? And what can you tell me about that?
1: Yeah, so one of the things we have noticed about a third wave in particular is that we are seeing more severe illness and more death, unfortunately, among people who are younger. And actually, fortunate side is we're seeing less of it among those who are older. Right. That's due to a couple different things. Of course, the key thing driving our third wave has been these variants of concern. This B117 so-called UK variant is the vast majority of our cases across the province and the vast majority of our cases in WDG. We, you know, we're learning more about these variants every day, but we now have good data to say that not only does it pass from person to person more easily, but it does cause more severe illness, and you have greater odds of going to hospital, greater odds of dying if you get it. So it is a more serious form of COVID. That is one factor. The other factor is you know, beginning in December and January, we've been immunizing our oldest age groups, beginning in long-term care, retirement homes, and then working our way down by age. And that has given protection to people in those oldest age groups who we know, but for the vaccine would be at greatest risk of death. Mm-hmm. Looking at data from waves one and two, you can actually see the risk of death from COVID. You know, it follows like an exponential curve as you go up in age groups. And so we knew early on that getting vaccine to those who were oldest first was gonna be an important part of our strategy. And so we actually have seen those have an impact. We've seen fewer deaths, fewer cases of illness, because of the higher vaccine uptake and the fact that it was prioritized for the oldest members of our community.
0: And since like all this data is, is public, it, it's easy for people to see, perhaps not as easy to understand. And one of the things I noticed in the last few days is the test positivity has been way up while the number of cases has been going down. Um, Circle that square for me and the listeners. You know, when we see that, what does that tell us?
1: So we look at test positivity in, our, in cases, both in combination to get a fulsome sense of the risk. And when we see positivity going up, we always ask ourselves, is positivity going up because, you know, the the burden of, of COVID, the number of cases, number of infections is going up? Or is there something about who's going to get tested that's influencing that? We know that the fewer people to go th- that go get tested, um, the higher positivity is going to be because typically among those who go, it's going to be those who are sickest, those who are most symptomatic. Uh, whereas if you have really, really high testing numbers, then a lot of those people are not going to have COVID. Right. So we consider those things in combination. Uh, our case numbers have been coming down, although they have not been coming down quite as quickly as I think we would all like. And while there was a pretty rapid descent recently, that descent has slowed down a little bit depending on where you look and how you look at it. Um, And our our positivity numbers, they've been fluctuating a little bit, but they're persistently high. And both of those things reflect the fact that we're not out of the third wave yet. Mm -hmm. And even though things are a lot better than they were a couple of weeks ago, they are still really tenuous and fragile.
0: Mm -hmm. Feel free to be as candid as humanly possible, but has it been kind of annoying that because we're all kind of watching the data so closely, we're, we're all kind of like backseat public health professionals now analyzing data. Whatever, whatever, and perhaps not fully understanding to the level of someone who's had the training you have that, you know, we're, we're kind of side eyeing the numbers and perhaps not not giving it the full analysis that someone like you and you're with your education can.
1: Uh, I mean, I I guess I'll kind of start off with an anecdote, which is to say that I did my medical school and my my other medical training in Hamilton at McMaster University. You know, as a a period of medical school where you have to decide what specialty you want. And I'm gonna be honest and say that when I began medical school, I had no idea what public health was. (laughs) I think even among the medical community, it's a bit obscure. I think the work of local public health units for many was pretty obscure. And uh, of course, we're a lot more popular now. And I will say it's great to have people following our work, understanding what we do, and understanding the role we play in keeping communities safe. I take your point that people, you know, there's a lot of opinions out there, people are sharing information, talking a lot about this stuff, understandably, because it affects everyone's lives very directly. And, you know, while we in public health have expertise, I know that there's actually a lot of value in the conversations that are happening among uh, either non-experts or different kinds of experts you know my my background is as a doctor I've also trained as an epidemiologist I come at things with those lenses but you know I am on Twitter and I'll follow people who I'll follow other doctors in different fields I'll follow epidemiologists I'll follow social scientists I'll follow communications experts there's a there's actually a lot of disciplines that have something to say that's meaningful about covid mm-hmm. and you know our expertise is not, is not uh, complete. We have depth in, in some areas and we have, you know, expertise in how to manage cases and how to interpret data and do all of the work that we do. But COVID is impacting all of our society and there's a lot about COVID that isn't just local public health job. Mm-hmm. And I actually appreciate hearing people share their expertise or at least share their thoughts, because oftentimes there are great thoughts that I haven't thought of myself. Mm-hmm.
0: Well that's fair enough. Um, I want to get your thoughts on this because uh, people may not know but you you recently became a father. Um, yes I and did. I, and, and I'm thinking about these things too as we sort of get get closer to the end of the the pandemic here but you know there will come a day you know your your child will you know go and enter school and they may be assigned a homework assignment something to the effect of you know, talk to somebody who lived through the great pandemic of 2020, 2021, and your, your, your child will go, well, I have the perfect person, my, de- my father. <laughs> so, you know, when, when they come home and say, you know, dad, what was that like? You know, what do you think? How, how do you think you will remember the last 15 months, 16 months? I
1: think I'd like to believe that uh, as difficult as some of the days are right now, Um, When we look back, when all of us who were involved look back and reflect, the things that were um, most difficult will fade from memory, and the accomplishments or moments of significant impact will stick around. I'm hopeful of that. I think that's oftentimes how things work. And I'll talk with my daughter, Sophie, when she's old enough to understand about, you know, what happened and really some of the great collaboration opportunities that arose, you know, we've been working with partners. It hasn't all been us, it's been partnerships across hospitals, assessment centers, you know, businesses. There have been a lot of parties on board and it's been an all hands on deck effort in our community. And we've worked together in new kinds of ways to share ideas, innovate, learn on the fly, you know, uh, develop ways of conducting ourselves that no one thought of. Mm -hmm. The idea that um, everyone in our community should be wearing a mask, Before COVID, no one thought that was something we would be doing. And might recall early on, people were saying that wearing a mask was not that important. And then the data came in and we learned and we began doing that and we were very flexible. We kept our eyes and ears open. We listened to people around us who have different kinds of expertise and we adjusted and adapted in a way that meets the needs of our community. And I think that I'll kind of reflect and share with my daughter how much we learned in such a short time and how we all developed all of our, uh, we all focused all of our efforts on trying to have the biggest impact we can. Um, You know, people pulling long hours, spending a lot of time reading, talking, meeting with stakeholders. Um, It's a really, really, really uh, intense way of working that hopefully mitigated the impact of the pandemic for as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other thing I think about is, you know, obviously COVID is front of mind for all of us right now. We're living the pandemic, it is real, it is right there in front of us and we feel it deeply. I know that when we move out from the pandemic, five years, 10 years, 20 years, it's gonna feel less and less present. And I think there's an upside and a downside to that. And the upside is people are gonna feel less stress and anxiety than they feel right now. You know, Obviously, as you move further out, people aren't gonna be becoming ill and dying from COVID in the way they are right now. All of those are good things. And I look forward to having that future uh, be our future. But I also know that there are a lot of things that we can and should learn from the pandemic
0: Mm. and I hope
1: those lessons aren't forgotten. You know every time uh, a public health event comes up you know it is front of mind but the history of public health unfortunately is that as a society we tend to lose track of that when it's not front of mind. Public health works in the prevention business we're thinking about it all the time but it's not front of mind for society and uh, you know we need to think about the possibility of the next pandemic and begin preparing all of our institutions, our governments, our, our, our all parts of society to deal with it when it comes up, knowing it may be unpredictable.
0: Well, SARS was a good example of that in 03. That should have um, given us, I mean, I'm old enough to remember SARS. So, you know, it, it should have given all of us enough of a nudge to have been at least on standby when something like it happened again. So perhaps, I mean, I actually found your answer fairly positive, but to, to, to create a little bit more positivity in the immediate sense. Um, I, I remember before Easter, Dr. Mercer said something to the effect of it was going to be, that was going to be sort of like the last holiday where we all had to keep apart. And um, the prime minister coined the phrase one dose summer. Uh, sounds cooler than I think. <laughs> that it, 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 I, I, are you still of that opinion and, and public health in general, um, you know, things will, we're kind of on an upswing now that there'll be... I don't want to say everything will be normal in the fall, but we'll be closer to something resembling normalcy by the fall as opposed to something resembling how we are right now.
1: I I think that's right. I think that um, things will look better in the fall than they look right now. Of course, you know, COVID throws us curveballs, and things happen that we can't expect. You know, the idea that we would have not just variants, but variants that are driving transmission in new kinds of ways. Uh, was not something that was uh, foreseen as the most likely outcome. It was always a possibility, but it was not foreseen as the most likely outcome. Um, what we're dealing with right now, of course coming off of our third wave, is that we are really trying to get cases down, down, down as best we can before we you know, relax measures and reopen large swaths of society. We know that COVID is still a threat and because of how easily it passes from person to person, we need to be really careful even though things feel like they're getting better. So we wanna make sure that wherever we uh, begin, when we begin reopening, we're starting from a place that is strong. We have lower transmission from where we are right now. And that's for example, why the stay at home order was extended into mm-hmm. June. You know, that's mm-hmm. what I said. So we wanna make sure we're starting from a good place. I also think that as we enter the summer, we're going to be in a better place with our vaccinations. We've been making incredible progress recently as the vaccine supply has increased. You know, across the province, over half of eligible adults have gotten a vaccine dose. We're now at a point where the hot spots in our province are actually getting better uptake and that they've got better covers than the non hotspots, which is really a great thing to see. Uh, and we want to continue to get that number up and up and up so that we have, if not herd immunity levels of protection, at least something that gives much broader protection than we have right now. Mm-hmm. I think if we can get case numbers down, and vaccinations up that overall changes the risk in our community in a really meaningful way, and it will allow us to have meaningful conversations about what we can begin doing that we couldn't do, how to do things differently, how to do things safely. I think it definitely changes the risk calculus for our community.
0: Stay the course.
1: Stay the course for a little while longer, but you know what? We're entering summer, more time, more opportunities to spend time outside. Um, you know, it's going to be. I think. Easier from here. I think th- I think our worst days are behind us. Although again, the <laughs> pandemic still has surprises sometimes.
0: Our worst days are behind us. With an asterisk, uh, you have properly covered yourself, Dr. Tannenbaum, and uh, we will leave it there. So uh, thank you so much for all your time today.
1: Thanks, Adam. It's a pleasure talking to you, and I appreciate the opportunity.
0: And once again, that was Dr. Matthew Tannenbaum. You can see Dr. Tannenbaum's statement about the change of the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine at the WDG Public Health website, which you can find at wdgpublichealth.ca. You can also get the latest data about COVID-19 and the vaccine rollout while you're there. And it should go without saying, but if it doesn't, if you're 12 years of age or over, you can now pre-register to receive your COVID-19 vaccine right now. Just go to wdgpublichealth.ca slash register. That is it for this week's edition of the Guelph Politicast. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU at the University Center on the University of Guelph campus. And to learn more about CFRU, go to cfru.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast on Wednesday from Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can download it from the host at podbean at guelphpoliticast.podbean.com. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you will get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can get in touch with me by email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. Reach me through Twitter at adamadonaldson or at Guelph Politico. You can find Guelph Politico's Facebook page at facebook.com slash politico Guelph. And if you'd like to help build a locally sourced independent media outlet in the city of Guelph, please consider donating to Guelph Politico. And you can find out how at guelfpolitico.ca slash donate. And for all the latest local political news, check out GuelphPolitico.ca where there will be a new episode of the podcast waiting for you next week. And until then, we will see you next time.